The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, while you guys are stuffing your faces, go ahead and... Uh, thanks a lot, Jeff. Um, go, ahead, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. If you forget what book it's in, just look at your cookie bag. Amos is an Old Testament book. It's a minor prophet. Ooh, that's a lot of lights. We only need a couple. Um, it's towards the end of the new, I'm sorry, towards the end of the Old Testament. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and that general location. Find Joel, take a right. Someday we'll hear that sound, but it'll be Bible pages turning, right? Instead of cookie bags opening. It'll be amazing. <laughs> Um, let's pray. Let's bless the cookies. As we <laughs> Father, I'm, I'm so thankful tonight, God. I'm thankful because um, you've reminded me through worship and through even just uh, studying your scriptures today uh, of how valuable you are. Lord, you've reminded me today, God, that you are my ultimate treasure. God, that you are infinitely greater than anything and everything in this world. God, I thank you for all those that have come out tonight. Um, I pray, Father, that as we eat cookies and hang out, um, that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you, that this book um, written by the prophet Amos would ignite our hearts with passion for holiness and passion for you and passion for your people and the lost and the broken and the hurting. So, Father, Holy Spirit, come into this room and teach us who you are tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Amos chapter 2, if you guys are there. So this is our third week into Amos. The first week was sort of an intro. Last week, Jeff covered chapter 1, if you guys weren't here. We got to know Amos a little bit, who he is, what he did. The book of Amos was written 800 B.C., so that's 800 years before Christ, okay? Uh, So if you do a little bit of math, that's about 2,800 years from Christ today, right? 2,800 years, um, close, almost 3,000 years ago that this book was written. This is an ancient document, an ancient book, an old book. And what I find so fascinating about it, the first thing that really struck me as I was studying it, is that the wisdom that's here and and the things that Amos is going to prophesy to Israel, even though it was 3,000 years ago, is 100% and totally valid even today, right? There's people in this world that would like us to think and, and, and want for us to believe that, that people and that, that men and women are actually getting better. That we used to be primitive, we used to be cavemen, but we're on this trajectory um, to utopia, this trajectory where everyone's gonna be perfect and happy and we can all live in unison and that we're more evolved uh, now than we were then. Do you guys think that's, th- that's true? <laughs> It's, it's not. It's not true at all. Sir Frederick uh, Catherwood, in, in a little preface to Amos, he wrote this. He says, despite the Holocaust of the two world wars in which, now get your head around this number, in which 50 million people were killed without the aid of nuclear weapons, men and women still believe that human society can get their act together without the fear of God, which the psalmist says is the beginning of wisdom. I don't understand how anyone can think that even though within less than 100 years ago, 50 million people were put to death simply because of racism, 
that we as mankind are actually getting any better. I don't know how people can think that. The reality is, and what we're going to learn from Amos, is that people have been bad since the fall, since the beginning, since Adam and Eve. People have been people, and people will always be people. And this is the good news about the word, is that we can look at it, and we can learn from it, even though this document is almost 3,000 years old, literally, we can still learn the wisdom there. The wisdom is there. It's ready for us to grab God is aware, has been aware, always will be aware of the condition of man's heart. He deals with it in Amos, and he deals with it today. He had a plan for it in Amos' day, and he has a plan for it in our day. So, a little bit of my, okay, my intent and my direction tonight, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but there's a few things I think are important, okay? Now, for me personally, I have a hard time reading the Old Testament prophets. Anyone else? You can admit it. Anyone else have a hard time reading? Man, there's so many people in here that don't have a hard time. I'm kind of embarrassed now. Um, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, it's hard. It's hard to read the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because, first of all, half the time you don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> right? What are they talking about? Second of all, they're brutal. They're, they're, they're full of wrath and judgment, and it just seems dark, and it seems depressing, and it's like, man, how many, you know, you wake up at six in the morning, and you just don't want to go to work, and you want to find an encouraging thing, and God's talking about smiting Edom, and you're like, that's not encouraging at all. How does that apply to my life? It's confusing. It's, it's frustrating, but guess what? A large part of the book of the Bible is made up of the prophets, so they're there. They're important, and that's why we're studying them. So what I want to do is hopefully, and my heart, my calling, I feel like, as a, as a Bible teacher, is not primarily just to, to minister when, when I teach and when I, when I, when I uh, preach, but also to teach people how to read the Bible. That, to me, is exciting. Like, I want to teach you guys how to approach a book like Amos and how to understand it and how to read it and how to apply it and how to look at it. And if I can do that, that, to me, is more exciting than you getting my point. Because then you can go back and read it on your own. So what I want to do is before we get into the exegesis, before we start breaking it down verse by verse, I actually want to spend a little bit of time talking about how to read the Old Testament prophets, okay? Um, How to read the Old Testament prophets. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, um, if you're taking notes, we're going to just quickly, it's going to take 10 minutes and we'll move on, talk about six things that I think are important to remember when you look at the Old Testament prophets, such as Amos. Okay, so six things, you could, you could think of them like lenses, glasses to put on maybe when you look at the book, to look through these things, to remember these things, to think through these things. And I think it's important that we do this before we start getting in too far to the book, because they're, they're just important things. So number one, how to read Old Testament prophets. There's much more than this. There's much more we could talk about, but this is just some things I thought were important. Number one, the Jesus of the gospel, and I stole this point from my wife, all credits due, the Jesus of the gospel is the same as the God of the Old Testament. Okay, let me say that again. The Jesus of the gospel is the same as the God of the Old Testament. Okay, Uh, I was having a conversation with um, my buddy Tyler Ming, and we have have a a guy's Bible study on Friday mornings, and we were talking about um, the Trinity and Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he said, he's like, my daughter said the funniest thing the other day. Her name, she's four. Her name's Naomi. She's really cute. And they, they were having a conversation, him and his four-year-old daughter. And she said the funniest thing. She says, Daddy, let me make sure I get it right here. She says, Daddy, I think I like Jesus more than I like God. <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. It was so funny because, I mean, out of the mouth of babes, right? But that's how a lot of us feel, whether we admit it or not, or whether we want to admit it or not. Subconsciously, we're like, yeah, God's kind of a bully. He seems kind of harsh. But Jesus, I like Jesus. He's hip. He's cool. You know, I mean, he says some things that are kind of, you know, that can unite people, and he talks about love and stuff. But, but God, I mean, ugh. 
He's a little rough in the Old Testament. Okay, well, the first thing we have to understand that we have to know reading the Old Testament books is that Jesus is God, <laughs> okay? The Trinity is confusing, I get it. It's, it's a tough doctrine to understand, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three, but they're three in one, okay? And I think sometimes we over-separate the different persons of the Trinity. Yeah, there's the Holy Spirit. Um, he lives at Pentecostal churches. And then there's God the Father. You know, he hangs out at the ultra-conservative, you know, uh, all holiness. And then there's Jesus. He hangs out at the, the, um, the non-denominational churches, you know, where they don't wear shoes uh, and sit in amphitheaters and stuff. That's where Jesus is at. It's not true, okay? There is one God. We're monotheists, not polytheists. And that one God has three persons, but those three persons are one. As confusing as that is, it's important. And it's important that we know that when we read these books because sometimes we can think, oh, well, this is Old Testament God. He's a jerk. Just wait till we, you know, wait for 800 years till we get to Jesus. He's cool. No, they're the same, the same God. So when you see Jesus' heart to the lost sheep, when you see Jesus' heart to his people, how he saved, how he died, how he poured out love towards those that he loved, his people, his creation, that's the same God, the same God that we see here, okay? Point number two, context. I know Jeff drives this home all the time, so I'm not going to talk about it very long. But context is extremely important when you're reading Old Testament prophets. Extremely important. Every prophet in the Old Testament took place during real historical events. You know that? Okay. Amos took place in the 7th century, 8th century, sorry, 8th century, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. A real king, a real, a real period of time with real things happening. And the prophecies that he spoke out had everything to do with what was going on historically. So if you don't understand what's going on historically at the time, it's a little confusing. Now, there's, there's a tool that can help you with that. If you want to pick it up, there's a, there's a Bible out there called the Chronological Bible. And what it does is it takes like, books like First and Second Kings and Chronicles and, and all of the Second Samuel and First Samuel, and it, and it intertwines them with the prophets that spoke for those historical times. So you can read what the prophet says and what was going on historically at the same time. Also, a good commentary will help. Um, John MacArthur has a really good Bible commentary that just covers the whole Bible, and it's only this big. Um, that's an excellent one as well. So it's important to understand. Quick example as to why that's important. Listen to this. Jeremiah 7.32 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hanam, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. That's brutal, right? I mean, you read that, you're like, that's my devotional for the day. Okay, slaughter in Topheth, got it. Write that on the fridge. Okay, when you read it out of context, it seems brutal. When you read it in context, listen to the verse before it. Verse 31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to what? Burn their sons and daughters in the fire. They were sacrificing their kids to Moloch, <laughs> literally, burning their kids. And God is PO'd, if I can use that. Okay? He's upset. He's not into it. Why? Because they're burning their kids to a false god. So when you read the prophets in context, it makes a little bit more sense. It, you get it. You get it. Okay? So context is important. Number three, uh, God's chastisement is just, and it's from a father's heart. It's just, and it's from a father's heart. Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We learned about that on Sunday. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I had to give my, fa- I had to give my daughter her first little spanking the other day. And I, I don't think I did it hard enough even to hurt her, but it just broke my heart. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. But I had to do it because she was out of control. She was like freaking out, throwing the biggest fit ever. If she was six foot five, she would have killed me, you know? Um, so, I mean, it was cute still. She's so cute. Uh, but I had to give her a little spank. And, and it was like the hardest thing ever to do, but it was so important that I did it, okay? Don't report me, okay? It's in the Bible. It's biblical. The Bible says to do it. Um, anyways, it was important that I did it. It was important that I did it because it was the most loving thing that I could have done. In the prophets, we see God speaking through the prophets to the children of Israel, but he does it as a father. He does it in a way that's loving, and we'll see that as we look at our text. Number five, and this is huge. Ooh, yeah, skip four. Guys, good call. You're listening. It's impressive. Uh, number four, who are we in the narrative? That's the question of the prophets, right? Who are we? Are we Israel? Is America Israel? A lot of people read the prophets, and you can disagree with me on this, this is fine. Um, a lot of people read the prophets and they say, yeah, okay, America is Israel, so America's doing all these things, and Israel is doing all these things, so no. America is not Israel, okay? God made a covenant with Israel, with Abraham specifically, an unconditional covenant with Israel that he's still going to withhold, that he's still going to uphold. Has God made a covenant with America? No. We're just, we're a nation. We're a Gentile nation that has Christians in it, yes, but God has not made a covenant with America. So you can't apply everything in Amos. You can't apply some things maybe, but not everything that is Israel can be applied to America, as, as arrogant as we are and as, as awesome as we think, oh, we're not Israel. We're not God's chosen nation. We're just not. So we need to be careful of that. So who is in the narrative? Well, I would say it's, it's actually better, and you have to be careful of this, but I, think, I would say it's better to put yourself in the position of Israel. Why? Well, because God's made an unconditional covenant with you. God has entered into covenant with you. You're his chosen he pulled you as a Gentile. He pulled you as an uncircumcised of heart. And, and he saved you, just like he did Israel. So I think that God treats us a lot more like Israel than, than say, like America or a nation. But we have to be careful of that, too, because of the next point, number five. The prophets are a snapshot of an imperfect covenant. This is important. When you look at the prophets, this is not God's end-all covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. It was not the covenant that he's aiming for. The covenant that he's aiming for is the one that we're in now, the new covenant, the covenant that is covered and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if I read the prophet Amos and I put myself in the shoes of Amos and God is pummeling me with promises of wrath, I'm gonna just shrink and I'm gonna feel like God doesn't love me, he's not my father, he just doesn't like me anymore. So you need to be careful of that because guess what? Christ was pummeled for me. God's wrath was poured out completely. Every drop was drank by Christ on the cross, and now the Father sees me as perfect. He sees me as Christ. I am hidden in, covered by Christ. So be careful reading it that way too. Okay, so when you read those verses of wrath, you're like, oh, God's so mad at me because, yeah, I screwed up yesterday, and now he's gonna get me, and my house is gonna burn down because he said that Jerusalem was gonna burn. No, be careful of that. You are covered and atoned for by the blood of Christ. The wrath has been taken. The wrath has been drank. Does that make sense? Okay. Last one, and then we'll move on into the text, is you need to ask yourself the question, what is prophecy look like today? What is new covenant prophecy? Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, just such as Amos. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there was a position, a role called the prophet in the Old Testament, but that position is gone. That position is gone. It's been fulfilled in the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, okay? Now, there's gifts of prophecy, but that's not like fortune cookie stuff, okay? That's like gifts, gifts of edification, words of encouragement that we can give to each other. But they need to be grounded and rooted and based in Scripture because Jesus is the end all prophet, the end all king, the end all priest. So the prophets were a position that was needed in the old covenant but is no longer needed in the new covenant. Why? Because Christ became the prophet and the Holy Spirit now prophesies through us, into us, through our hearts. The the law is written on our hearts and now God speaks conviction and brings things into our hearts directly because he lives inside of us. The law is written on our hearts. So that that doesn't mean that that God can't use people to prophesy into your life, but the, the office of prophet is no longer. Jesus has fulfilled that, okay? So hopefully those six things are helpful, are helpful for the way that we read this book. Now, having said that, Hopefully that didn't take too long. Let's get into it, okay? Chapter 2, verse 4, says this. Thus say the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. It's kind of a big verse, so I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking that. Um, In chapter 1, God was, through Amos, prophesying judgment and wrath that was to be poured out on surrounding nations, okay? Israel is surrounded by lots of nations. It was a pain for them back then. It's a pain for them now. They're surrounded by lots of people that don't like them. They were surrounded by lots of people that didn't like them then, too. And God was judging all of their neighbors, all of their surrounding Gentile people, okay? in chapter one. And now we get to chapter two in verse four, and God turns his attention a little bit closer. He turns it to Judah. Now I need to explain something to you. This is something that I didn't get for a long time, and it drove me crazy. I'd be reading Kings, and it'd be talking about Judah and Jerusalem, and then I'd be talking about Israel. And I'm like, well, Judah is Israel, so why is Israel in a different context? It was really confusing to me. And then once I figured this out, it was huge, okay? For the majority of Israel's history, they were split into two kingdoms, you guys know that? Two kingdoms. The kingdom in the south and the kingdom in the north. It was, it, there wasn't very many times when it was actually united under David and Solomon. It was united as one kingdom, but for the most part, it was the kingdoms in the north and the kingdoms in the south. Kingdoms in the south were referred to as Judah, if you want to remember that. The kingdoms in the north were referred to as Israel. It's confusing, right? Because Israel is the whole thing. But two kingdoms. It's important to know that when you understand the prophets, because if you don't, you're going to get confused. When you read books like First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you're going to read about the king and then the king. And you're like, why is there two kings? Well, there's two kingdoms in Israel at this time. There's the south and the north, Judah, Israel. Got it? So God first, through the prophet Amos, turns his attention to the tribes in the south, Judah. Judah, by the way, is where Jerusalem is, okay, in the south, southern parts of Israel. His first indictment to Judah in verse four, if you look at it, he says, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment 
Because they have what? Rejected the law of the Lord. Why is God so serious about his law? Have you ever thought about that? Why is he so serious about his law? Here's the thing. God's law isn't just a list of things that he made up. God wasn't like when he was creating the heavens and the earth and you and I and, 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 and Adam and Eve. He said, I think I'm going to make a list of rules that they need to follow. And that's just going to be how I know whether they love me or not. No, he didn't just design a list of rules. Some of the law were specific things that he created for their good, like not eating pork. Because back then it was unhealthy, things like that. Still unhealthy. But um, yeah, anyways, whole other story. Um, but the majority of the laws weren't actually just things he made up. They were actually things that were consistent with his nature. God is holy and perfect and righteous. He is what is right. So the law is really just a representation of his nature. So when you break the law, it's not just that you're breaking some imaginary code that God made up. When you break the law of God, you're actually going against who he is and in a sense taking an action that hates him. God is good, God is perfect, God is holy. When you engage in actions that are not good and not perfect and not holy, you're breaking not just some random laws, you're breaking the very nature of God, the very characteristics of God. That's why holiness is a big deal because it's anything that's not holy is anything that's outside of the nature of God, okay? That's why we don't put God on trial or judge God and say, well, is that fair that he did this? Well, whatever fair is, is whoever he is. If it's God, then it's fair. He defines fair. Fair is created by him. Right and wrong is created by him. Right is whatever is God. Wrong is whatever is not God. Does that make sense? <laughs> Anything that is opposite of God is breaking the law. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal not just because it's a list of commandments, but because it's who he is. And what Israel is doing, specifically Judah, is they're breaking the very nature of God, which means that they don't want anything to do with God. They don't care about who he is, what he's done. They don't care about that. That's what they're showing by breaking the law. Now, secondly, in verse four, it's interesting, too, to note that they didn't just break the law, but they, they, they broke the law, but they still kept it as part of their culture. That's what's interesting to me. In Judah, the temple was still functioning. The sacrificial system was still going. Um, the scriptures were there. The scrolls were there. The law was there. It was present. There was scribes and Pharisees that were there tending the law, and there were synagogues and things going on. All that stuff was still happening. The law was still present, yet there was no real obedience to it. It wasn't important to them. It didn't mean anything to them. Does that sound kind of familiar? A little bit? I mean, the scriptures is the number one selling book in the world. Okay? We have millions of, of Bibles in this, in this country. Okay? Millions of Bibles. All of us have Bibles. People in this country that, that don't even believe it have one on their shelf just because. We have the scriptures. We print the scriptures. But as a nation and as people, a lot of times, most of us don't even care about it. We don't even believe it. And that's what's happening at the time. They have the scriptures. They have the law, but they're not obeying the law. They're not heeding the law. They don't care about the law. Then it says in verse four, if you look, it says, not only did they reject the law and they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Their lies have led them astray. I find it interesting that it's their lies that have led them astray. It's not someone came in from outside and the lies of those people led them astray. No, it's their lies. They're lying to themselves. 
Judah is lying to themselves. They're leading themselves astray. How often do we trick ourselves, right? How often do we lie to ourselves? Because why? Because we prefer the lie to the truth sometimes, don't we? We prefer the lie to the truth. Listen to Romans 125. Paul says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than, I'm sorry, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. One thing about mankind that was true 300 years ago, 3,000 years ago, sorry, and is true today is mankind naturally prefers what is not true oftentimes to what is true. It's part of the fall. It's part of sin. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in in his second letter to him. He says, I charge you, in chapter 4, 1 through 5, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, Paul says, and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience and teaching. Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, listen, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says, Timothy, there's gonna come a time where people want to be lied to They don't want it straight. They don't want to hear the truth. And they're going to hire teachers. They're going to hire pastors that will tickle their ears, that will tell them what's not true so that they can continue to believe it. I just watched a really interesting movie. Maybe you guys should rent it. Uh, It's totally clean. It's called The Giver. And it's based off of a book that I think was banned. I don't know if it was banned. It's not from this country, but it was banned somewhere. Um, might be required reading in some schools. Really interesting story. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like that, you know, feature movie where the whole world has kind of gone to pot. It was torched or whatever. And so they rebuild this little civilization and it's very controlled and, and everything is forgotten. All the memories of war and, and, and love and, and, and all this stuff is taken away. Everyone's the same color. No one can compare themselves to anyone. There's no feeling or emotion. And then there's one kid called The Giver. And the giver passes on to another giver, and they're the keeper of the memories. And they remember what life used to be like, what the world was like before this controlled thing. And so this kid, he, he gets selected to be the giver, and, and uh, he starts receiving all this information. He's, his mind's blown. He's never even seen colors before, right? And, he, and, and at the end of the movie, he's just trying to get that information to everyone, because he knows if he can get that information to everyone, then things will change. But the funny thing is that most of the people there don't want it. The high council, she doesn't want it. She just wants to live in her lie. And I'm like, that's such an interesting picture of the way that we are. We don't want the truth most of the time. That's why this is so important, guys, because this doesn't change. This is the truth. And if I come to this willing to allow this to, as Romans says, transform my mind, then it will. Or I can find a commentary that I like and tells me what I want to hear, I can find a devotional book that tells me something that isn't going to challenge me, that isn't the truth, that tickles my ears. But what I'm interested in is what, God did, what did God really say? What did God really say? Now, there's, it's interesting. Look, look at our text and look down to verse 11 and 12. I'm just going to skip ahead and we'll come back. Amos says, he says, I raised up, this is the Lord speaking, I raised up some of your sons for prophets, some of your young men for Nazarites, 
Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? And then he says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and this is the key part, and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. They're, they're, they're getting the Nazarites drunk, and they're telling the prophets, shut up. We don't want to hear it. We want the lies. They want to believe the lies. They don't want to hear it. And Amos is commissioned to come in and tell the truth no matter what it costs. He's called to come in and give the truth no matter what it costs. Verse 5. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, historically, that happened. It happened a couple hundred years later, and it happened because of the Babylonians. Okay, the Babylonians came in, as you guys know, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they took over Israel and they pulled them as captives. You remember the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were pulled out of Israel as captives to go and live in a foreign land. You can actually split most of the prophetic books into two categories, pre-exile and post-exile. There's a 70-year exile that happened where Israel was pulled out of their homeland for 70 years and most prophets are before that, some of the prophets are after that. So Amos, okay, Amos is, is before that. Um, Jonah, Isaiah, were all prophets before that exile. And then prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah, Haggai, those were post-exile. So this happened, the city burnt, Judah burned. It burned because of the Babylonians. God said it, it happened. That's it. Now, that was Amos's prophecy to Judah. Let's look at Amos' prophecy to the tribes in the north now, Israel, okay? Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, listen, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So immediately, the indictment against the tribes in the north, immediately the indictment against the tribes in the north is justice, it's a lack of justice. And when I say justice, I mean taking care of the poor, taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. The immediate accusation is justice. He says, you sell the needy for a pair of sandals. What that's believed to mean is that people were so poor they couldn't even have enough money to buy a pair of shoes. So they would go to a loan shark, they would go to someone that had money and they would, they would borrow money to, 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 to buy a pair of shoes. And then if they couldn't pay that back, these people were so greedy that they would sell them or take them as a slave for the price of a pair of shoes, because they couldn't pay back the price of a pair of shoes. Just rampant greed and wickedness. Verse seven, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. God says through the prophet Amos to the tribes in the north, he says, you are treating the poor like dust. Can you think of anything more insignificant than dust? Have you ever been walking around and thought, oh, I shouldn't step on that? I mean, that's important, right? You just step on it. You just walk on it. You don't want it in your house. You dust it off. It's unimportant. Amos is saying you're treating these poor people, you're treating the people that can't help themselves like dust, like the dust of the earth, trampling on their head. It means they're not even thinking about this. They're not even noticing that what they're doing is wicked. They're not even noticing that they're taking advantage of them. They're treating them like nothing, now, Jesus talks about this type of sin in a parable. If you want to go there with me, I'm really running out of time. Um, if you'll go there with me, Matthew chapter 18, 
Verse 23. Jesus says this. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. With his wife and children and all that had the payment to be made, so the servant fell on his knees. So this, this guy is this huge debt, this massive payment, and he can't pay, me, and pay it. And the master comes to him and he says, I need to collect on that. You need to start paying me. And this guy's like, I don't have any money. I can't do it. I don't have it. He falls to his knees, imploring him, says, please, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. He said, okay, I feel bad for you. You can't pay this. Go free. Complete grace, right? Go free. You're forgiven. You guys have heard this story. But, verse 28, but when that same servant went out, the one that's just been forgiven, he's free. His debt's wiped clean. He's free. He went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This is a fraction of the amount that he has just been forgiven. And seizing him, grabbing him by the throat, he says, pay me what you owe me. (laughs) So his fellow servant fell down, just like he did, on his knees and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. (laughs) And he refused. He went out, put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master all that had happened. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should, not have, ha- or you should have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Okay, that's the story that Jesus tells. In light of forgiveness, he's talking about forgiveness. Now, how does that correspond? Here's Israel, Okay. Here's Israel stepping on the poor, stepping on those that can't fight for themselves, stepping on those that have nothing, like dust of the earth. But who was Israel hundreds of years before? They were no one. They were nothing. God God pulled Abram from Ur, from a pagan land, gave him a new name, gave him a covenant, gave him a promise, gave him a people. Then he delivered them out of Egypt. They were slaves. They were nothing. They were nothing in Egypt. Delivered them out, fought their battles, parted the sea, fed them, gave them everything they need, delivered them into the promised land, built them a nation, gave them what they wanted. They want a king. He gives them a king. He delivers them, judge after judge after judge. He causes the walls of Jericho to fall down. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the temple. He gives them the Mosaic covenant. He gives them the Ark of the Covenant, his presence, a pillar by day. Right? Or is it the other way around? He gives them all of these things. And here they are, hundreds of years later, treating people that were just like them, like dust. This is, this is them in this parable. This is them. Jesus is illustrating the same exact thing. He says, you've been forgiven everything. God has given you all grace. And now you give no grace back. How does that work? How does that work? God sees that wickedness. He sees that wickedness in their hearts and he hates it. Guys, we as Christians ought to be the kindest people on the planet. You know that? We aren't. 
but we ought to be. You know why? Because we have been given everything and we deserve nothing. We have been taken, you have been taken, I have been taken and plucked from nothing and given eternal riches. Someone, some kids broke in here on Saturday. Um, I had all my gear set out and uh, I was ready to go for the next morning, uh, lots of equipment and things, and, and I come in the next morning and the lights were on, it was kind of weird, there was a ladder pulled down in the back and I just was like, this is funny, what's going on? And then we get ready to play and a bunch of our headphones are missing. I'm like, what's going on with that? You know, where do our headphones go? And I'm like, well, someone, someone jacked them, whatever, you know? So we go buy some more and we just keep playing. And then Monday, um, I get a call uh, and, and uh, Brent had been talking to Phil Long and Phil's like, yeah, some kids broke in. They, they pulled a bleacher and they climbed up here into this attic space and they, they pulled down the, the, the ladder and they smoked some weed and uh, stole some stuff and they threw your headphones in the garbage because they thought they were gonna get caught and the cops showed up because of the alarm system and they got caught. And I'm like, stupid kids, they're so dumb, what's wrong with them? Grow up, you know, like you're so stupid. <laughs> and I'm just not gracious at all. Throw my headphones in the garbage, what's wrong with you? Stupid. Brain damage, you know? Um, and then I just, I, I didn't think anything of it. And I just went and spent some time with the Lord, um, just in the morning, just reading, and it just kind of hit me like, who am I to, who am I to say that about those kids? The dumbest guy in the world. Who am I to say anything negative about those kids? Who am I to do anything but pray for them? Like, Lord, save them. They think they're gonna find joy by breaking in and smoking weed and stealing stuff. Man, those poor kids, they need grace. They do. And I felt guilty about it. I'm like, Lord, why? Who am I? Who am I to say anything or feel anything against them that's not complete grace? Because I have been shown and I have been given more grace than I would ever deserve. If we really understood what God has done for us, we would never have feelings like that. We would never have attitudes like that. And that was just a, a little glimpse into like, man, what am I doing ever judging? What am I doing ever being upset? with the things that people do when I realize how much God has forgiven me. This is us in so many ways. And it starts here. The heart of that is as soon as you start thinking that you're something special, listen, as soon as you start thinking that you're someone special, that's when you start thinking that others are not. Catch that? As soon as you think that you are something special, that's when you think others aren't. Okay, let's look historically. A couple hundred years ago in the southern parts of our country, there were white people that owned plantations that were filthy rich from exploiting black slaves. They treated like garbage, right? We all know this, this is our history. <laughs> Why did they do this? How could they do this? Because they thought that the blacks were inferior to them, that they were more special. So therefore, the blacks could get paid nothing and be slaves and work the fields and pick cotton and they could be rich in their houses because they were more special. And in their heads, even biblically, that made sense. And in their heads, they justified themselves by that. Okay, back to the Holocaust. How could Hitler do what Hitler did? How could he kill millions of Jews? How could he kill millions of, of, of little kids just because they're Jews? Well, because he, he bit a lie, and that lie was that he was special, and that his little race of blonde, blue-haired, blue-eyed, whatever, were special, and that anyone that wasn't that wasn't. So therefore, they should just die. Sounds absurd, but it happened, right? It's real life. 
He thought he was special, and they weren't. That was the heart of it. Now, those, those are extreme examples. Maybe we could hit a little closer to home, right? Hit a little closer to home here. I know most of us think we're beyond that. Racism, yeah, that was, that we're, we were dumb. I'm so much smarter than the guys in the 1800s down in the South. They were just boneheads. We're way smarter now. We're more involved. We get it. No. We do the same stupid stuff all the time. Why? Because we think that we're special. Okay, someone's going to get mad at me for this, but that's okay. The whole immigration thing, I get it. It's complex. I get it that it's political and, 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 and our country's probably not doing it right. But sometimes when I hear people talk about it, these uber conservative people, they're like talking about these Latinos like they're not even people. Yeah, the guy's trying to hop our border because he's starving probably and he wants to feed his kids and he wants to work a job. He wants to go pick the field and the, the fruit in our fields. Now, when I, when I read the news and I read about immigration and, and people trying to get into our country and all these illegal immigrants, is my instant reaction, oh, send them off. Or is my reaction to say, I should pray for them. They're stinking people. They want to feed their kids. Right? They want to work jobs. They want, to, they want what we have. And guess what? We didn't do anything to deserve what we have. I was just born here. I didn't do anything to deserve the comfort that we have in this country, the food that I have on my table, the job that I get to work. I was just born here. It was God's grace. Completely 100% God's grace. And who am I to say just send them off? Good grief. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for them that God would fulfill their needs, right? It just seems silly to me. Or the people that are making our clothes in Asia. The people we don't like to think about <laughs> that, 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 that put together our stuff and get paid nothing. And how many times in our head when we think about that do we just go, yeah, but that's just life over there. That's just who they are. What? <laughs> if that was happening in our country, we'd freak out. Now, I'm not saying that I do any of these things. I'm saying this is what I was convicted about as I read this. Do I treat every human being like they're really God's? When I drive down Biddle Road and see some guy with a beard and hair screaming cuss words at a car, which I saw today, by the way, for no reason other than he's tripping out and he's done so many drugs that his brain is fried, what's my first reaction to that guy? That guy sure screwed up his life. Man, what an idiot. Put him somewhere, I don't want to look at him, put him somewhere away. Seriously. This is not God's heart. And, and, and as soon as I think I'm something special, that's when I look at people differently. As soon as I think I'm something, that's where I treat people like they're not something. So my question is, my question is, how do I change that? How do I change that? Let's read on. Verse seven, I really gotta hurry up. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. This is most likely talking about, in verse 7, some sort of a slave girl. that the, the father and the son are both going in to sleep with the slave girl. Sexual immorality, of course, is following with their greed and their sin. Verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay, this is basically an Amos painting this picture of a judge who is charging people with civil fees... And those people pay with maybe all that they have, which would be maybe a barrel of wine. And that judge, rather than giving that to the state or the city like he was supposed to, would keep it for himself, and he would go get sloshed, right? He would go get drunk on it. That's what basically Amos is saying here. You're getting drunk off of what you're stealing and what you're taking from people. He says, they lay themselves down, verse 8, beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. 
And in the house of their God, they drink the wine. What is the garments taken in pledge? In Exodus 22, you can write it down and look at it later. It's interesting, verse 25. There's actually a, a law that says if someone owes you a debt and they can't pay you, that you can take their garments, okay, their cloak, whatever, tunic, and take that until they pay you back. But you have to give it back at night because God is gracious. He wants them to be warm when they sleep. Go figure. What was happening is they were taking the tunics and they weren't giving them back. And then they had the audacity to put them on and wear them to the temple to worship God and put them down to kneel on them while they worshiped the Lord. And Amos is seeing this and he's prophesying out against this. He says, how can you live in such injustice and still worship God? It doesn't make any sense. Verse nine, yet it was I, the Lord says, who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. God is reminding them. He says, have I not destroyed the Amorites before you? Have I not delivered you out of Egypt? And I think therein, listen, we'll close with this. Therein, in verse 9 through 12, I think is the answer to my question. How do I, a wicked sinner who thinks he's special when he's not, Treat people that seem to not be important like they are the most important people in the world. How do I care about the illegal immigrants? How do I care about the guy screaming at my car driving down the road? How do I care about the people in the projects in the inner cities that just want to shoot each other and do drugs? How do I care about them enough and not just say, let's just leave them there? They got themselves into that. How do I care about those people? How do I care enough to think about who's making my clothes? How do I care enough to think about these people that can't defend themselves? How do I care enough to live the justice that God would have me to live and to not continue in the things that Israel did 3,000 years ago? How do I care? The answer's here. It's you remember what he's done for you. If you think you're something, if you think, if you think you're something, then you're not thinking clearly. You're tickling your ears. If you think that you have the job that you have and the life that you have because you're so smart and cunning and you went to school and you got a good business going and you found the right person to marry, then you're completely fooled. It's only God's grace. Every single one of you could have been born in Mexico, in Africa, in the projects in Oakland. Every one of you could have been born, I could have been born anywhere. I was born here and it's nothing to do with what I did. It's God's grace. I was born into a Christian family that loved me, that ministered the gospel to me, I've never been without a job. I got a beautiful wife and a beautiful kid and I didn't do anything to earn that. And the second that I think that I did, that's where justice goes out the window. <laughs> because then I start treating others like, well, if they would just get their act together, then they could have a good life too. It's God's grace. It's only God's grace. We have to remember what he did. We have to remember what he's done for us. And when we remember what he's done for us, then and only then will we be able to love people like people deserve, like God loves people, to walk in justice. Listen to this. Worship always precedes justice. That's why I'm glad I'm a worship leader. Gosh, there's nothing better than worshiping the Lord. 
True worship always precedes justice. It's when we worship God, when we view God, when we see God, when we see his grace, when we see what he's done, when we see how he's ministered to us even though we did not deserve it, that's when justice will come out of our lives. That's when we'll do what's right. That's when we'll do what God would have us to do. Only when we see his grace and his love for us can we understand that. Verse 13, just to finish it up. Behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves presses down, flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. God's saying, he says, I'm gonna take you back to your true state. I'm not taking anything away from you. If God took everything that you have away from you, you would only realize the state that you actually are in. You don't really have anything. You don't really own anything. All we have is the Lord. All we have is his grace. There's times where I hear stories about people that that lose things in their life. And I feel like those people, more than anyone in the world, understand and realize the truth of their state and our state, that all they have is God anyway. Take their health, take their kids, take their wife, take their job, take everything, their joy, and they'll realize, I never had this stuff anyways. It was a dream. All I really have is God. It's God or not. The quicker we realize that, the sooner we realize that, that all we have is him, and all we need is him, the sooner that we'll start treating people the way that we ought to. There's a connection between worship, and there's a connection between justice. We can't truly love people until we love God. Amen? All right, would you guys stand on up? Father, I'm thankful for Amos, this shepherd from Tekoa, that you called to go up to the tribes in the the north, the rich, so similar to us in so many ways. I'm thankful that you spoke a message that needed to be spoken, that we can glean from that, we can learn from that 3,000 years later that that same wisdom is there, that same truth is there, that God, you are all that matters. And the second we forget that, we begin to crush people like dust. Lord, help us to love those that are unlovable. Lord, as Christians, we have so much to be thankful for. You've given us everything. And Lord, I pray that we would treat others in a way that reflects that. God, help us to pray for those that aren't in the same situations as us. We think we have problems. Lord, I pray we would pray for those that really have problems, God. Lord, give us hearts for those that that, that are hurting, for those in this city that are homeless. There's so many homeless teens in this city, God. I pray you give us hearts to do what we can, to go out into our culture, to go out into our city and to minister justice and to show people the gospel. Lord, make this a church that has a heart, not a church that comes and goes through religious actions with our Bibles worn, but no justice in our hearts. God, make us people that have true love for holiness and true love for your heart for people. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name, amen.